open up to Colossians 1. Uh, today we're going to tackle verse 2. But I want to start off with the question, um, are we sinners or are we saints? Are we sinners or are we saints? And that is a question that is worth considering this morning as we are finishing looking at the greeting that Paul writes in his letter to the Colossians. So look with me now at Colossians uh, 1, verses 1 and 2. Colossians 1, verses 1 and 2. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. Okay, we covered verse 1 last week, but looking at verse 2, notice that, that, that Paul, asks, uh, Paul addresses the Colossians as saints as saints, which at first can seem kind of weird to us. And so the question is often asked by many people, are we sinners or are we saints? Because we know some verses like First uh, John 1, 8, for example, that says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. And yet, so we know we all have sin. We know sin still remains in us. And yet Paul, time and time again in his letters, he addresses Christians as saints. And so are we sinners or are we saints? And while there is a simple answer to the question, it is an answer that needs some explaining because there can be oftentimes some compl complexity and confusion to that answer if we don't understand the terms that Paul is using. But it is a question that we must consider this morning if we're going to start our journey towards maturing in Christ as we learn from this letter to the Colossians. However, I actually do not even like the question. And I know that's weird because I'm the one that posed the question, but I don't like the question. And the reason I don't like the question is because I think it forces you into an incomplete answer. Okay, I think it, it, it kind of it kind of boxes you in and forces you into an incomplete answer. And I think the question could be better asked by asking a clarifying question along with it. And the question would be to clarify it would be uh, which one of these terms, sinners or saints, which one of these terms helps define your identity and purpose? And which one of these terms explains why it is a struggle to live in the reality of your identity and purpose? Okay, so one of these terms really defines you, while the other term does help explain you. Okay, and so uh, now when we hear the word saint, all right, when we hear the word saint, at first thought we probably think of something different than what Paul is trying to communicate to us. All right, when he refers to the Christians in the city of Colossae as saints, when we hear the word saint, our minds probably go to the Roman Catholic view of sainthood, right? Mm -hmm. Yes. Uh, so in, in Roman Catholicism, after someone has died, if they can't, it can't be while they're alive, but after they have died, they have a process where someone can officially achieve uh, sainthood. Okay, and uh, and this happens typically with someone who has lived uh, an extraordinarily devoted life to God, sort of like a, a super Christian that you would think of. 
And then uh, Roman Catholics, they often, they, they'll offer prayers to the saints, and that starts to get a little weird and not okay. Uh, but they make paintings of these people and stained glass pictures of them, and they've got halos around them and all of that, okay? But that's not what Paul is referring to here when writing to Christians living in Colossae, who are still alive and who are not walking around with halos around their heads, he is writing to them and he calls them saints. He calls them saints. So what, what, what is he talking about here? Because Paul oftentimes in his letters to the churches, he often calls his recipients saints. This wasn't just a one-time thing. He wasn't just uh, singling out the church uh, there, the Colossians, uh, but he's, he opens up a lot of his letters this way. But listen, we have to understand he's not using it to compliment these Christians on some advanced level of holiness. He's not saying that they have achieved some sort of super Christian status. Uh, he's actually using the, refer, the, the word to refer to the fact that these Christians have been set apart by God and for God. They've been set apart by God and for God. The word, the word saint is referring to someone who has been set apart by God and for God. And this was the theme that was originally introduced to humanity in the Old Testament through the nation of Israel. Back in Exodus, God said to his people, he said, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation a set-apart nation. And now we see the same thing being applied to the church. Peter, when he writes in 1 Peter 2, verse 9, he says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. And so this is the word that is translated into the English word saint. It means holy ones. It means set apart ones. But Paul doesn't even really know these Christians, which is kind of weird, right? Like he doesn't know these Christians on a personal level, and yet he calls them saints. How is this possible? He hasn't had coffee with them. He hasn't sat down with them and really dug into the deep issues of their hearts. He doesn't know all their testimonies. He doesn't know their background, and yet, and yet he can still call them saints. How is this? How can he call them saints? Well, you see, he can call them saints because he knows geography, all right? He knows geography. He knows where they are at, all right? Look, look back at verse 2. If you have your Bible, look back at verse 2. He says, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. Right, So he, he calls them saints because he knows geography. He not only knows their physical geography, he knows that they are in the city of Colossae, right? That's where they physically are at. Just like we as Christians, we are the church in Franklin or in Uganda. We have a physical location, a physical geography of where we're at. But look, Paul is also aware of their spiritual geography, Right? He, he says to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ. In Christ. The reason Paul can call Christians saints, the reason he can call them holy ones, the reason he can say that they are set apart by God and for God 
is because they are positionally in Christ. They are positionally in Christ. And what, what did we say last week about our growing in maturity through this letter to the Colossians? One of the ways that we will become more spiritually mature is as we live our lives more and more out of the reality that we are in Christ. Like if you want to be spiritually mature, if you want to mature in Christ, you must first learn and believe that you are in Christ, that you are in Christ. This is, and this is what theologians have called our union with Christ, our union with Christ. Now, you might be thinking, okay, great, all right, now, now that we are in Christ, uh, we're saints, we're set apart by God and for God, and therefore sin no longer is an issue, right? I, I mean, if, if I'm positionally a saint and not a sinner, then why does our church talk about sin every week? Like, why do we talk? I mean, some churches don't talk about sin anymore, right? If we're saints, why are we even talking about sin? Shouldn't it be a non-issue? And here's where we need to understand, church, that being called a saint, being called one who has been set apart by God and for God, does not mean that that is an end to your struggle with sin. Not at all. It is actually the beginning of your struggle with sin when you have been set apart by God and for God. Sinclair Ferguson, in his book, The Christian Life, which I would recommend to you, he writes, for while we have died to sin, sin has not died in us. For what, like, like, why do we still talk about sin even though we're saints? Like, why, why, if we're positionally in Christ, if we've been set apart by God and for God, why are we still talking about sin? It's because for while we have died to sin, sin has not yet died in us. Those who are in Christ, we struggle with sin. That is a normal part of the Christian life is to struggle with sin. Listen, before Christ, there was no struggle with sin, only surrender to sin, only slavery to sin. But those in Christ, we struggle with sin. However, because of our union with Christ, not only has our relationship with God changed, but our relationship with sin has changed as well. And oftentimes people, uh, oftentimes people, when they become Christians, they learn about this new relationship with God that they have. They, le they learn how their relationship with God has changed. And rightfully so. We should learn that. That is a good and great thing to learn. But we also need to understand how our relationship with sin has changed as well. Because some of the errors that people fall into, uh, one is thinking, well, if I've been saved by grace through faith, if I'm in Christ, if I'm a saint, if I'm a holy one set apart by God, then I'll just keep living in sin and God will have to forgive me, right? That, that's, that's one sort of thinking that people can have. And someone, who's, uh, someone with that thinking, they might understand that they've been set apart by God, but they lack the understanding that they've been set apart for God, right? Which is why we need to understand that to be a saint is to both be set apart by God and for God. And then on the other side, there's, an, there's an, another error that happens with people. People get really discouraged and they start to despair because they know their identity and purpose in Christ, that they've been set apart by God and for God. 
and yet they don't understand why they still struggle to really live out their true identity and purpose in Christ. And so many people, they despair, they feel guilty that their faith is so weak, they feel guilty that they still struggle with sin, and they think that, hey, if I've become a Christian, if I've become a saint, surely I shouldn't still struggle with sin. And here's why we must both understand that a saint is, yes, someone who is in Christ, who has died to sin, but we must also understand that sin has not completely yet died in us. However, in Christ, our relationship with sin has changed. Okay, Paul, when he wrote to the Romans, he addresses this and he he addresses some of these issues and helps us understand our new relationship with sin. So if you've got your Bibles, go ahead and flip over to Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6, verse 1. Paul writes, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. You see, when we put our faith in Christ and Christ alone for our salvation, meaning we rest completely on his work on our behalf and not our own, when that happens, then we are united with him. And this this is the picture that water baptism so greatly illustrates, right? When someone is put under the water, it is a picture of them being united with Christ, right? Their, Their old self crucified and buried with him. And then when someone is raised up out of the water, it's a picture of them being united with Christ in his resurrection in life, right? Raised to new life in Christ. And so someone who has put their faith and a new relationship with God, right? They've been justified, declared right in right standing before God. They've been reconciled. They've been restored. But someone who has put their faith in Christ also has a new relationship with sin. And what Paul says, uh, remember in, in Romans 6, verse 6, he says, we know that our was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. This is is good news, church. This is good news, church. In Christ, no longer are we enslaved to sin. You see, before you started following Jesus, you didn't realize it, but you were a slave to sin. You couldn't help but not sin, 
right? I mean, even the good things you did were ultimately done for your own glory and not God's. Even your own morality and good works were underneath driven by selfish ambition and worship of self. But now in Christ, we who once were slaves to sin have been freed from sin. It's been said that, yes, sin still remains, but it no longer reigns. Like, praise God, church, right? Praise God, sin, yes, remains, but it no longer reigns. It no longer has the same authority over our lives. It no longer has dominion over us. It no longer defines us. However, we still talk about sin and we still teach about sin in order to help explain the struggle that is still going on in our hearts. But it no longer defines us. Our geography has changed. We who once lived in sin are now living in Christ. You see, this is, this is such a beautiful truth that we must know and believe if we are to really become who we truly are. If we're really going to grow up in Christ and become spiritually mature, we must know this. We must know that we are in Christ. You see, now that you are in Christ, you are truly free. Each day you are free to make choices and decisions to glorify God or to glorify self, to worship God or to worship self, to serve God or to serve self. But here it is. Here's one of the most joy-giving, energy-producing, life-sustaining truths there is, okay? No longer do those decisions determine who you are, but instead as a Christian, You get to make choices and decisions out of a grateful response to who who God has determined you to be in Christ. That you are now set apart by God and for God. And this this is how you were meant to flourish and mature in Christ and to grow up in Him, not tirelessly working for perfection as if your decisions determined who you are. But instead, you get to joyfully live and choose obedience out of a grateful response to who you are in Christ. And this truth actually frees us. It frees us to make better decisions and choices in our lives. It it frees us to obey, to say no to sin and yes to God. Uh, for, For example, let me use an example here, okay? I think we can probably all agree that reading our Bible is a good thing to do, okay? I, I know most of you well enough that I'd say we all agree, that's, we all know that's a good thing to do, and yet depending on the week, it might look like more or less for us. Now, this morning, I could probably guilt everyone into reading their Bible every day this week. I think I could do it, right? I could probably scare you into it and say, if you don't read your Bible, God won't love you as much or he'll be disappointed with you. And I could maybe kind of guilt you into reading your Bible every day for about a week or so, but then you'd probably burn out uh, because fear and guilt can only motivate for so long. But the truth is actually so much better, all right? Because yes, I still think you should read your Bible every day, but not so you don't disappoint God. I think you should read your Bible because you have been set apart by God and for God. And therefore, reading his word is a way to get to know this great God who has graciously set you apart. And it's a way to learn his ways and align your plans with his purposes and his mission in the world. And so 
a simple decision to read your Bible and, and more broadly choosing a life of obedience, it should not be made in order to determine who you are before God, but it should be made joyfully in light of who you already are in Christ. And so this is how we as a church, right? This is how we pursue obedience. This is how we struggle with sin, not out of guilt and fear and shame, but out of a grateful and joyful love for a God who has set us apart. And this will be a lifelong journey. This is going to be a lifelong journey. And at times it's going to be a struggle to really become who we truly are. But one of Paul's main points of emphasis and many of his letters to the churches is that this idea that we are still becoming who we truly are. We are still becoming who we truly are. For example, okay, let's use my boys as an example, okay? I've got four boys, all four boys, they're in the next room, right? Uh, they're, they're hearing this right now. All four boys, they are walker boys, all right, they are walker boys. They were born, and when they were born, by no merit of their own, uh, they became walkers. All right, they, they did not, they like, like, walker was given to them as their last name. They instantly became a part of the walker family. And there is no disobedient act that they could do that would remove them from being a walker. At least none so far, or none that I could think of. Uh, and yet, okay, all right, while, while there's nothing they could do to remove them from being a walker, yet in the same sense, they're also still learning how to become a walker. And not just learning how to walk, but, you know, learning what it means to be a part of the walker family, learning what it means to grow up and be a walker man, right? I've got four future walker men, and therefore may, they must learn what it means to be a walker man. They must grow into and learn uh, how to become who they truly are, right? And so I'm trying to teach them what it means to be a walker man, walker men. I think walker men should strive to love God and love others. I think walker men should strive to protect and provide for those that God has entrusted to them. I think walker men should be honest and generous. Uh, they should love and respect women. They should open the door for their mama. Uh, walker men should be willing to lay down their lives for the sake of others. Walker men should have a good sense of humor. And walker men should take responsibility for themselves and those under their care, as well as they should take responsibility for their shortcomings and acknowledge that they will have many. Okay, so those are just some of the things. That's what it means to be a walker man. That's what it means to be a man in the walker family. But how paralyzing it would be for my boys to think that every decision they made would determine whether or not they were a walker. And many of us live as Christians that way. And we never mature in Christ. But how freeing and how life-giving it would be for my boys to know and be assured that they have been set apart for this very purpose, to live and to learn and to grow and to become who they already are. They are walkers, right? They are future walker men. And in the same way, church, as Christians, you are saints. You are saints. 
but you are also still becoming who you truly are. And how paralyzed we often are thinking and living like our choices and decisions are still determining, determining and defining our true identity. Like what, what could life be like if we really knew and believed that we were in Christ? I mean, think about that. Think about that for a moment. If we really knew and believed that we were in Christ, what could life be like? What could life be like if we really knew and believed that we had been set apart by God and for God? Like, what if we stopped living life in order to determine who we are, but instead lived life in light of who God has determined us to be? Don't you think that that could provide us some clarity as to our true identity and purpose in this life? Like, like what if we understood that while sin, does not re- while, while sin does still remain in us, it no longer reigns over us? Like, couldn't that give us some clarity and comfort and maybe even a little bit of confidence in our struggle with sin? Like what would change in your life today if you really believed that you, just like the church in Colossae, because you are in Christ, that you had been set apart by God and for God? And I I fear that some of you feel as if you have nothing to offer God. Like some of you feel as if you are unworthy or you've made too many mistakes to be of use to God and his mission in the world. But what a sense of dignity and worth there is in realizing that you have been set apart by God. And what comfort there is to know the approval and the worth and the dignity there is to be called and set apart by God and for God. No one in our church should ever feel as if they have nothing to offer or that they are unworthy or unfit for service to the Lord. Church, I did not set you apart. If you have faith in Christ, God has set you apart. That's a big deal. That's a big deal. However, then there are others of you in your pride that feel as if it is your own and your own gifts and your own abilities that have made you valuable enough to God to be worthy of being set apart. And this is also false. This is also false. Paul, when he's writing to Timothy in 2 Timothy 1, verse 9, speaking of God, he says, Who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. We are not set apart by God because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ. Oh, church, like you, you who are set apart by God and for God, what if we believe this today? Would we maybe take our walk with Christ a bit more seriously today? seeing that what a privilege it is to be set apart by God? Would we maybe live less selfishly today, knowing that we've been set apart for God, not for ourselves, but we've been set apart for God? 
Would this not give our days some much needed direction and purpose and motivation if we believed we were saints set apart by God and for God? And would this not give our days some comfort and peace to know our geography that while, yes, we might be in a global pandemic, we are ultimately in Christ. We are in Franklin, yes, but we are in Christ. We are in quarantine, yes, but we are in Christ. We are saints. We are set apart by God and for God, not because of our own good works or merit, but because of God's purpose and grace. And so as I'm wrapping up this morning on this Palm Sunday, which it's Palm Sunday for those that weren't on the, uh, the kids uh, call before this, maybe uh, we haven't acknowledged it. It's Palm Sunday. It's a Sunday that is commemorating Jesus's triumphal entry into Jerusalem on a donkey. And as the palms were waved and laid on the ground, they represented victory and peace, which was exactly what Jesus came to bring. However, the victory and peace that Jesus would bring would not be accomplished the way the people thought it would be. Because God is not like us. God is not like us. Like we have tried to bring our own victory and peace and all we have found is defeat and chaos. And therefore, may we no longer shout for ourselves to save us. May we no longer shout for our governments to save us. May we no longer shout for Dr. Fauci to save us. This morning, we shout with the universal church across the globe. We shout for the Lord to save us right? We shout Hosanna, right? Lord, save us. Hosanna. Hosanna. But the people in Jerusalem, they were calling out for Jesus to save, but they wanted him to save them from the Romans. They didn't really understand what they really needed him to save them from. And oftentimes the same is true of us. It's not ultimately the virus that we need saved from. The virus is a symptom of something much more serious that our world has. What, what did the angel tell Joseph before uh, Jesus was born that he would save his people from? The angel said, she will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And Jesus, he, he lived a life of perfect obedience. He was the only righteous one who ever lived. He was the, the good and faithful servant that we failed to be. And Jesus came to give up his life and to be killed on our, in our place on our behalf, to be the once and for all sacrifice for sin so that we might dwell with God once again. So that in our union with Christ's life, death, and resurrection, we might be set apart by God and for God. Church, God might save us from a lot of things, but for those who are in Christ, he promises to save us from our sin. And this is why we can d dismiss almost in the same way that Paul opens up his letter by saying grace to you and peace to you, church. Right? The, the, the Father has sent us grace and peace through his Son, Jesus Christ. May we know the grace and peace that God has sent to us. Sin no longer defines you. Sin no longer has dominion uh, over you. Sin no longer determines who you are. 
sin might still remain for a while, but it no longer reigns over you. And so may you embrace your true identity and purpose today as one who has been set apart by God and for God. Let's pray.